You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 27th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Webb. Coming up on today's programme, China announces plans to end mandatory quarantine for inbound travellers, but it comes at a time where a rise in COVID cases are impacting an already stretched health system. We'll have the latest. We cannot exclude their readiness and even willingness to attack Kosovo in the future. The Serbian army says it is at its highest level of combat readiness following claims that Pristina is preparing an attack on ethnic Serb areas in North Kosovo. Monaco's Balkans correspondent Guy Delorny will be joining us. Then we hear from the president of the Kiev School of Economics, whose students have organised a toy drive for children in the capital. And we'll get the latest cultural news with art critic Francesca Gavin. That's all here right now on The Briefing with me, Tom Webb. China has announced plans to end mandatory quarantine for inbound travellers starting on the 8th of January. The move is Beijing's last step in shedding three years of zero COVID. China's hospitals are reportedly overwhelmed with the abrupt ending of many restrictions. Well, joining me now from Beijing is Jonathan Cheng, China Bureau Chief for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Firstly, can you talk us through the change in the quarantine rule? Sure. So for most of the past three years, coming into China has meant um, being subjected to a long quarantine. At one point, it was, I believe, 21 days. And most recently, it was down to eight days total. And now um, that's going to be scrapped. And so um, I think that's the most um, important part of things. Um, They've also said that they're going to try and make it easier for people coming into the country on business visas, on tours. uh, I'm sorry, not 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 quite tours visas yet, but family reunion visas and some other ones that are going to um, effectively take down some of the walls that have isolated China from the rest of the world since COVID began. So you say these three years of closed borders. Has the Chinese Communist Party been pushed into this, do you think? Well, it's really hard to say. I mean, I, I don't know that I pin it on international travel per se, but the economy was certainly taking quite a hit from zero COVID policies. Um, Factories were being forced to shut down if there were a few cases. Um, People had basically stopped going out to restaurants um, and traveling within the country and um, spending on social, uh, on services and, and all sorts of, you know, public spending. And I think that really took a big hit on, on the economy. So staying on the economy, early indications are showing markets are up once again. Is the optimism justified? I think it is, although I think with all things COVID um, as a species, I think we've gone through the cycle over the last three years of optimism followed by some disappointment. And I think there are reasons to be skeptical this time. And, and, you know, they range from the epidemiological, which is... um, do we see a wave in China? We are seeing a wave, but is it so big that it then forces authorities to have to 
hit pause or even reverse things a little bit. And then you also have the logistical questions, which is, um, are Chinese people going to want to, to leave the country in as large numbers as they had before? Can they get access to renewed passports? Because that, that has been a problem for the last few years. Um, and are other countries going to welcome them? So I think that's that's one uh, set of questions that I think in terms of optimism, I, I think we still need to see answered. So we are seeing a wave, I know, impossible question, but might international travel make it even worse in China? It is possible. Um, now, I mean, I think globally, China is, is perhaps the biggest source of concern just because people here are getting COVID many for the very first time. And of course, it's a very large population. Um, and, and, you know, uh, Public health experts have said there is a chance that you get mutations in the virus here within China and maybe these get exported. Um, obviously, that remains to be seen. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think um, there is definitely a risk that you have people traveling um, more in and out of China, but also within China. We have the Lunar New Year coming up in a few weeks, and that just raises a lot more possibility for transmission and for mutation and for um, all these sorts of things. There is definitely this desire to travel. I mean, we've already seen searches for flights from Hong Kong to mainland China surge. Uh, and there is an appetite, I think, for internal movements within China uh, since the easing of restrictions you mentioned there. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. Um, you know, there were protests last month. And of course, these are generally from uh, younger urban dwellers who um, had gotten used to China being um, more closely integrated with the rest of the world. Um, even though the internet has cut off their ways around that and people were studying abroad and learning English and, and all the rest of it. And I think for all these people, um, the last few years have been quite difficult in that respect. And of course, if your uh, livelihood was linked to um, the service sector in any way, you took quite a big blow um, or, or to international, you know, exchange in any way. Um, it's been a really difficult time. So I think there are a lot of people here who do want to sort of rejoin the world as it is. Well, since these protests uh, against the restrictions, I mean, has public opinion changed at all? Well, I think if you had asked a lot of people back in November, do you want to see COVID zero go away? I think many people would have said yes. But the way that it happened, I think, took a lot of people by surprise. It happened a lot more quickly than I think even some of the most optimistic people had thought. And of course, what it did was it left a lot of people unprepared. Um, people did not have the right uh, medication at home, partly because China had made it so difficult for three years to even walk into a pharmacy and buy drugs because they were concerned about um, it spreading quietly without the authorities knowing. So people didn't have stockpiles at home. Um, elderly uh, people didn't really um, have a chance to respond to any sort of a vaccination push before all of the uh, restrictions went away. And so all of a sudden you have um, basically any household in China that has an elderly person in it, which of course is, is many households, um, they suddenly have someone who is potentially uh, very much at risk here. And um, I spent uh, time at three hospitals yesterday. I went from uh, one to another within Beijing. And if you go to those uh, intensive care units, it is, um, it's really bad. And um, Patients are not able to get beds. They're lying on cots in the hallway. They have oxygen tanks rigged up to them or IV drips. Um, and so that's part of the toll here. And so, you know, it, it, you're sort of pulled in both directions. I think a lot of people wanted uh, for this to 
go away, this policy. Um, they wanted to have their life back, as it were, and to be able to be um, making a, a living again and having fun. But on the flip side, you also have um, a lot of people getting sick, and especially for the older population, uh, a lot of people are dying. So to combat this, we're hearing today that coronavirus tablets produced by Pfizer are going to be distributed to clinics across Beijing. But you mentioned some of these provinces and and seeing huge uh, cases and, and intensive care units already at capacity. Is anything being done to ease this? Well, I mean we know that they've been sending doctors from outside of Beijing into Beijing. That's partly because Beijing is the capital. It's an important city. It's the most important city. It's also, um, again, anecdotally, because we don't really have uh, precise numbers. The government has stopped reporting the numbers. And, and I don't know that anybody knows exactly how widespread infections are anymore. But um, anecdotally, it does seem like Beijing, for whatever reason, is taking the brunt of this, partly because it's in the north. And, um, you know, you hear a lot of chatter around town that the particular strain of COVID that we have here is, um, is especially nasty. So um, you have that happening. But you're right that in the provinces, these are lower resourced places, you go out to the countryside, um, you're not going to have this level of care, and you're not going to have um, the number of doctors and nurses with the experience um, to deal with something like uh, the Omicron variant. So, um, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really opaque picture right now across China, because you don't have very much reporting at all that is um, open and 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 willing to to look closely at some of the most difficult things that are happening in China right now from the from the state media and those of us in the foreign press were pretty limited and not able to to, to cover everything in this country but we're doing our best and obviously um, I think uh, I, I think we'll really start to see uh, in the next few weeks whether or not this is really bad or whether um, many people are going to weather this um, at home and uh, and we'll get to the other side. Jonathan, thank you so much. That was Jonathan Chang, China Bureau Chief for The Wall Street Journal. Now here's Emma Searle with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul has said he would advance the creation of a military unit specialising in drones, criticising the military response to a border intrusion by North Korean drones. Five North Korean drones crossed into South Korea yesterday, prompting Seoul to scramble fighter jets and attack helicopters to try to shoot them down in the first such intrusion since 2017. Coronavirus tablets produced by Pfizer will be distributed to clinics across Beijing as the Chinese capital faces a huge wave of cases. Earlier this month, mainland China abruptly ended many COVID controls, but infections surged, pressuring the country's already stretched health system. The death toll from Christmas Day rains in the southern Philippines has risen to 13, with the search still on for 23 people as the floodwaters started to recede. Unlike previous disasters brought on by tropical storms in the Philippines, the latest torrential rains and flooding was the result of a sheer line, an area where warm and cold winds meet, causing huge rain clouds to form. President Biden has approved an emergency declaration for Western New York as the state deals with a massive winter storm that has claimed 28 lives. Emergency crews in New York are continuing to rescue marooned residents from what authorities called the blizzard of the century. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thanks, Emma. After weeks of escalating tensions between Serbia and Kosovo, the Serbian army says it is at its highest level of combat readiness following claims that Pristina is preparing an attack on ethnic Serb areas in north Kosovo. 
The Serbian army has been put on a heightened state of alert with Kosovo multiple times in recent years. The last time in November, after the government claimed that several drones entered Serbian airspace from Kosovo. Well, we're now joined by Monocle's Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay. Guy, why is trouble flaring up again? I mean, it seems a bit daft to say this, but this all started with a dispute over vehicle license plates. And Kosovo, the government in Pristina, wanted all the ethnic Serbs who mainly live in the north of Kosovo to stop using Serbian-issued number plates and start using number plates which were issued by the authorities in Pristina. And this is all part of Kosovo's attempts to show that it's a functioning independent state. Now, this isn't the way that Serbia sees it. Serbia doesn't recognize Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence, which it made in 2008. And ethnic Serbs living in Kosovo don't generally recognize the authority of the government in Pristina. So we had this row over number plates that rumbled on. We ended up with situations like the entirety of the ethnic Serb um, contingent in the Kosovo police force resigning en masse. Um, We've had all the ethnic Serb people who worked in Kosovo institutions resigning. Um, we've also seen barricades going up on the in ethnic Serb areas of Kosovo and at crossing points between Kosovo and Serbia. They've now been in place for, for two weeks. So we've got a very heightened state of tension. And what isn't helping here are the reports that we're seeing in Serbian tabloid media, who are basically saying that the authorities in Pristina are preparing to attack ethnic Serbs and that this is the final step in expelling all ethnic Serbs from Kosovo. So this is the excitable tabloid press at work here. And you can imagine the impact that's having on the Serbs in North Kosovo and also within Serbia itself. And it's giving the authorities in Belgrade the pretext to say, right, we're increasing the alerts and the state of our troops. We're putting them on a high state of alert. We're moving artillery pieces closer to the border with Kosovo. It's all very worrying. Uh, a lot of saber rattling. Um, but nonetheless, when you've got this sort of rhetoric and those sort of you know, high tensions at play, uh, bad things can happen. So how is the international community reacting to this? It's been a bit slow to react to it over the Christmas break, it has to be said. We've now had a statement coming out of the EU's um, foreign affairs department saying that they're calling on the leaders of Kosovo and Serbia, that is to say Prime Minister Albin Kurti of Kosovo, President Aleksandr Vucic of Serbia, to to talk, to de-escalate, to find a political situation, uh, to find a political solution to the situation rather than the situation escalating into violence. It needs to work a lot harder at getting the parties round the tables and getting them to back down from these positions that they're taking. I mean, I've t- we've heard about what Serbia is doing. It's worth pointing out also that the government in Kosovo is telling the NATO peacekeeping force, K4, that if they don't remove the barricades that have gone up in North Kosovo, then the authorities in Pristina will do it themselves. Now, that's an obvious point where you're going to have conflict, if not with Serbia, then at least with the people who are manning barricades in North Kosovo. So we are also seeing a change in Serbia's population makeup with the first results of the 2022 census just out. What has it told us? It's uh, telling us that Serbia is losing people at a very rapid rate. Uh, Half a million people uh, have left Serbia uh, between now and the time of the last census, which was in 2011. So in just over a decade, half a million people have gone. That's 7% of the population. And you can imagine what portion of the population this is going to be. The people who are leaving, the people who are mobile, 
uh, are going to be the youngest and brightest. And they'll have been going off to largely European Union countries, not waiting for Serbia to join the European Union. They're already finding their so-called European future now. And uh, this is leaving a lot of parts of Serbia. I would say apart from the capital Belgrade and the second city, Novi Sad, the depopulation is quite significant in Serbia now. Now, Guy, if you don't mind, as our Balkans correspondent, if we could hop to Croatia and end on a lighter note, it's hard to avoid a storm brewing there in a winter resort all to do with sunbathing. So this is Apatia, which is in Kvarna Bay in, 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 in Croatia. And this was originally this, the winter resort of the Habsburgs. And it still has that sort of slightly grand feel to it when you go to Apatia. I often spend uh, a little bit of summer just round the corner in a place called Lovran. And uh, it, 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 Lovran isn't quite so hoity-toity uh, as Opatia. But uh, the locals who live in Opatia are getting really quite exercised by the fact that they're seeing concrete blocks being installed on the rocks, which is you know, basically Croatia has a rocky coastline. The sea is beautiful, but there's a lot of rocks around. And they're seeing these concrete blocks installed, which they know is a prelude, these artificial sunbathing platforms being installed. And they're saying that this is going to ruin the the uh, the traditional sort of Habsburg winter resort air of Apatia as the hospitality businesses try to basically expand and get more money. Well, there'll be no sunbathing for you as you take over on the briefing tomorrow here in Midori House. Uh, until then, Guy Delorney, thanks so much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You're back with The Briefing with me, Tom Webb. In Ukraine, the holiday season has been a time of coming together under extremely different circumstances. Earlier, Monocle's Chris Chermak sat down with Timothy Milovanov, president of the Kiev School of Economics, whose student organised a toy drive for children in the capital that has raised tens of thousands of dollars. Milovanov has been writing daily updates about life in Kiev. He began by describing what he saw on a recent trip across the country to pick up additional donations at the Polish border. Most people are busy you know most people are doing things and you know it makes me proud of ukraine maybe but also more generally of you know of humanity these gas stations which operate at night trucks keep coming you know packed the roads are packed with stuff coming in humanitarian support occasionally you see convoys military convoys coming in you know everyone is busy working but i also see people who are poor I see people who are, you know, hitchhiking, not that many, but uh, some, you know, I drove maybe 17 hours, maybe 1,300 kilometers. I've seen one or two people who hitchhike. That's actually a culture in Ukraine. You can, but this is just a symptom of how tough it could be. I didn't really see any people who are poor like they were in the 90s because I grew up in the 90s. I finished the high school and the 90s were more difficult than now. People were scrambling, you know, like trying to get food. I saw people going to trash bins, trying to find something there, elderly. That was not the best part of, of humanity. When I say that was something nasty and awful and I, I really don't, you know, can't understand how societies allow poverty to become so prevalent. That's not the case now. So I don't see people who are extremely poor, but I worry what is to come. You have become sort of a man of all trades, which I imagine so many in, in Kiev and elsewhere have to become at this point. But you are 
the head of the Kiev School of Economics, but you've also been spearheading efforts to secure humanitarian donations. You've taken it upon yourself to write daily updates about life in Kiev. You advise the Zelensky government on economic matters. How are you holding up? Yeah, when you say it like that, that's overwhelming. I just got overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, I, 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 usually I don't think about it. I just, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know if it's a sprint or marathon, but I just keep doing things. And everyone keeps doing things um, around. So there are a lot of good people around me and that they make it possible. Just an example, uh, we are known now the Kiev School of Economics for assessment of damages to the Ukrainian infrastructure and economy. And we publish monthly or sometimes weekly assessments and they get uh, picked up by the Financial Times or by the Wash Post, by New York Times. And there are 60 people working on it and 17 NGOs and think tanks. And we coordinate and lead, but this is the teams. The same with... Uh, humanitarian support. We raised $41 million since the beginning of the war, the Kiev School of Economics, but it's not me who raised, or it's not even the leadership of the school. It's just the fundraiser's team. And so there are a lot of, you know, there are hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people around us, and we work with them together. Well, and I wanted to ask you about some of those, uh, Timothy, particularly also the role that your students have played. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is that your students have been heavily involved also in securing donations and particularly Christmas gifts for Ukrainian children. How, how did this initiative come about? Yeah, the, this is actually a heartbreaking and heartwarming. Uh, initiative at the same time, and I, I honestly I didn't know didn't know much about it. And just before Christmas, I was at the Kiev School of Economics for another reason. I didn't even know that uh, the students were doing it. I was showing the school to a potential donor, but the kids, the the freshmen and the bachelor, uh, that's the first and second year of the bachelor program, they organize a. Christmas or St. Nicholas gift day for kids, for orphans and refugees from the east of Ukraine, from Bakhmut, Kherson, from Mariupol. And they were just giving it. And there were 50 kids. Um, and it was heartbreaking. I cried, really. I, I, I ran away from everyone and I cried because these kids are going through hell. And uh, our students organized it completely independently. So I talked to them and asked, you know, how many kids are out there? And they said, okay, 500, 5,000. We will we'll get as many as needed. Then I wrote about it on Twitter and people responded and we got 40 or $45,000 raised and we have given many more gifts. And now we're going to do them until maybe mid-January. We will keep giving gifts. And, you know, it seems like a mundane thing, but... When I saw that little kid, like three-year-old, she was shining, running for this candy present. And I kind of realized that maybe this is one of the very few highlights in her life currently. So we have to do it. And it's, it creates, you know, it's kind of, we show that we're human and we, we make them happier and forget about the war, even if it's for several hours. As you say, heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time. I, I wonder if that's the same for your students, if I could ask. I mean, how have they been coping during this time? And does an effort like this, sort of the humanity of it, does that bring a smile to their faces, I hope, as well? Well, they appear to be. I don't know how they are 
in private and maybe they cry too. But uh, in public, they appear to be happy and determined and resilient. And, you know, we, we treat, we respond to the war and tragedy by action. That's our spirit here at the Kiev School of Economics and among many, many people around us. But I, I think they're like that, too. They just respond by doing something, you know. If something bad happens, they want to change it. They want to do what they can. And so they run around happy, you know, smiling, organizing all of this, you know, packing this uh, presence and doing all kinds of things. And this is exciting. And in fact, you know, when it's hard, when it gets hard for me to get through this and carry on, then I, you know, I just come to the school and look at the kids and talk to them, to the students. And it gives me energy. Speaking of getting some energy, perhaps, I do wonder about the holidays. You said that this initiative uh, would continue until mid-January. I just was curious, from your perspective as well, you know, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church announced this year that people would be free to celebrate on December 25th, in addition to the traditionally later Orthodox Christmas on uh, the 7th of January. How many people do you think have taken that up? Oh, almost everyone. You know, I talk to people and uh, definitely I celebrated, but spoken, everyone I've spoken to them, they said we're going to celebrate twice. That was the president of the Kiev School of Economics, Timothy Milovanov, speaking to Monocle's Chris Chermak. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Monocle's free-to-subscribe daily email newsletters, the Monocle Minute and Weekend Edition, deliver headlines and a swathe of recommendations from our editors, correspondents and bureau. You can also browse a menu of radio highlights and Monocle films. While the focus is on news and comment during the week, our weekend newsletters deliver great columns from Andrew Tuck on Saturdays and Tyler Brule on Sundays. Cultural highs, media diets and far-off newspapers, recipes to cook at home. It's a fun take on weekend living. Head to monocle.com forward slash minute to be part of the conversation. And finally on today's show, it's time for a roundup of the latest cultural news. Art critic and curator Francesca Gavin joins me in the studio now. Thanks so much for coming in. We interrupted your Christmas shopping in Marlborough. I mean, I'm just returning things and getting the right ones. Very pleased that you came in. Now, there has been a lot of talk about Nepo babies in 2022, especially in the fields of Hollywood, fashion and publishing. But we cannot ignore nepotism in the art world, from artists to major art-dealing families. Francesca, what are Nepo babies and what trends are we seeing here? I mean, I love the phrase and it's gone crazy all over the internet, obviously Nepo being nepotism. And it's really interesting, obviously, the main focus of the Nepo baby trend is calling out people particularly within film and fashion, for having it easy, basically. Having parents who make your life easy. And all the Nepa babies from Lenny Kravitz, well, Zoe Kravitz onwards, are all basically complaining. And, like, obviously Johnny Depp and Vanessa Paradis' child being a very good example. So I thought it would be quite interesting to highlight how nepotistic the art world is. So many people, I mean, collectors, dealers... Certainly artists. I mean, in some way, it's probably the most nepotistic, let's say, genre medium out there. So I, I just think it's wonderful. It hasn't quite exploded in the same way as it has in other popular culture. But I think that's probably our hot trend for January. 
Lovely. We'll look out for that. Now let's move on to film and the documentary about artist Nan Goldin and her quest to bring members of the Sackler family to justice. They fueled and profited immensely from the opioid epidemic. This is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, and it has become one of the 15 films shortlisted for the documentary feature film category at the 2023 Academy Awards. Mm, yeah, this is really interesting. So Nan Goldin, photographer, obviously best known for doing a lot of... The, uh, autobiographical work in the 80s. In more recent years, very publicly, was kind of leading the anti-opioid and particular anti-Sackler activism throughout the art world, doing events outside of MoMA and... And the Louvre, for example. And I think at first everyone was a little bit like, well, she's complaining. But actually, her activism truly has had effect. Sackler obviously having sponsored and supported numerous buildings from everywhere from the Serpentine to institutions internationally, basically with profits made from the opioid industry. So this film is made by already Oscar award-winning documentarian Laura Potras, who did Citizen Four. It won the Golden Lion at Venice. But I think winning an Oscar... I think will make it very, very uncomfortable for Sackler within an American context. So I think it's pretty likely, but obviously there's some other great documentaries in there, but it's quite big news that something which is very much sort of art world focused has become that mainstream. Now, staying in the art world, I'm rushing to my favourite story. Uh, From one Francesca to another, the National Gallery in London has been accused of ruining Christmas following its three-year restoration of one of the world's greatest nativity paintings. I wish I could show you the result of this, as the shepherds in question have been ridiculed by the press as gormless and moronic, uh, with one resembling the awkwardness of a school disco. So what is going on here? Okay, this is really heartbreaking. I feel very emotional about this, as many people who love of Piero's nativity do. It's a painting from 1474. It's probably one of the most important nativity scenes that exist to this day. Arguably was in Piero's own collection. It was first published and it was purchased in 1874 for the National Gallery. Even then it was very damaged. It's always been damaged. A lot of kind of ruins and it almost looked unfinished aspects, which might have been done to further cleaning in the 19th century. I mean, Disraeli even argued in Parliament to let us buy it and why we should. However, the restoration has basically, obviously done with lots of research, has rediscovered figures that were very, very, very washed out and painted them in again. And it sticks out like a sore thumb, like a bright red, smiley face, horrible sore thumb. So obviously it may have been closer to the original, but it's definitely a case of restoration going too far. And I think a lot of people who maybe have emotional connection to the ruinistic nature of the original are very sad, like me. Are you going to worsen the heartbreak and go and see it in the flesh? I mean, I think you have to. If nothing else, because, I mean, it's an incredible painting, but it really looks like someone stuck a, 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 a sale sticker in the middle of your favourite painting. It's it's really heartbreaking. But yes, I do want to see what it looks like beyond the photographic reproductions, which you can see online. And it makes me very ha- happy that I have some old postcards. Francesca Gavin, thank you so much for joining us. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Laura Kramer and Emma Sell. Our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Tom Webb. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Listening.